Slate's Negotiation Academy is brought to you by FedEx. FedEx does more than shipping. They offer businesses a range of valuable solutions. Explore the solutions at fedex.com slash solutions that matter. Hi, I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Jill Barche. Welcome to Episode 4 of Slate's Negotiation Academy. As you may recall, in Episode 3, we talked about persuasive techniques. Now we're going to talk about physical tactics. So your first decision is, are you going to do the negotiation in person or by some other means? For instance, you might want to do it over the phone if you're, say, physically intimidated by your negotiating opponent or if you have trouble making eye contact. Also, when you're talking over the phone, you can look at your notes to refresh yourself on what your walkaway point is or what some of the other things you want to keep in mind are during your negotiation. Seth, did you even make phone calls anymore? No, only dorks make phone calls, Jill, which is why I want to talk about email. So you might want to do the negotiation over email if you don't think that fast on your feet. That way you can take your time and think about precisely what you want to say and what kind of counteroffer you want to make and how you want to word it for maximum impact. The other thing about email is it's a record of what everyone says so you can hold your opponent to something he said earlier in the negotiation. But I think if you're able to train yourself to overcome some of these limitations you think you might have about thinking on your feet or being physically intimidated by someone, it's better to do the negotiation in person. It's much more powerful when you can put your opponent on the spot, make an aggressive offer, look them in the eye, and then endure the uncomfortable silence. I think you'll find it's a lot stronger way to negotiate. If you've decided you have the courage to negotiate in person, and that's what our teacher and what we recommend, then the next decision is where to negotiate, the venue. Depending on the context, you could have a different feeling to the negotiation. If you have it in a living room before a roaring fire, it's going to be different than if you do it at a conference table under fluorescent lights. So, for example, if you're quite confident of your negotiating position and you feel that your opponent might be more insecure, that might be a reason to agree to have it on their turf. They'll feel more comfortable and they might concede a little bit more for you. So we decided to pay a visit to a seasoned diplomatic negotiator. Richard Huss is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was a negotiator for the Northern Ireland Peace Accords in the early 2000s. He's been involved in Pakistani-Indian negotiations. He was present at Palestinian-Israeli peace conferences. And he's my uncle. Wait. What, Jill? If I'd known you had this sort of negotiating lineage, I would never get into any negotiating fights with you. (laughs) No, really. He's my uncle. He's my mom's younger brother. And he says location's really important. For example, the United States often chose isolated things, the Y Plantation or Camp David. Why? If you could isolate the protagonists from the press, it was a way to at least minimize the chance for leaks. It was a way to get people isolated, perhaps more distant from their domestic politics. So isolation could often be a pretty good thing to do. And and go into that a little bit more. Why do you want, if you're in a really important negotiation, what is the benefit or wisdom of isolation? Isolation allows you to create a chemistry that's on the spot. It can sometimes create a, a, a trust and a certain dynamic. And by isolating people from journalists, it minimizes the chance of leaks, which can sabotage a negotiation. Sometimes you have to keep everything quiet because partial compromises could make it impossible for protagonists without the totality of the compromises, because then people would say, yeah, I gave up on A, B, and C, but I got D, E, and F. So you have to avoid that sort of thing, and isolation can help you. 
After you choose the venue, some people go a little bit crazy. They think about things like where they're going to sit so that the sun is in their opponent's eyes. Yeah, and some people think about what shape the table's going to be. Should it be a square or an oval or a rectangle? And who should sit where? Like some people think the power position is in the middle and other people think it's at the head of the table. Maybe you'll hold the negotiation later in the afternoon or even in the evening so people are a little more tired. Right. Ways and Means Chairman Bill Thomas, back in the early 2000s, he was head of a House committee that dealt with taxation and other matters. He was famous for holding midnight and 3 a.m. negotiations when everyone was so dog-tired. Some people even think about things like food, like maybe they're just going to put a couple of stale half bagels in front of your opponent so that they get hungry and cranky. (laughs) Starvation technique. There's even forced hydration. Richard Haas experienced that. The current president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, his father was known for prolonged sessions where he'd wear down his opponents, and we used to call it bladder diplomacy. And we finally figured out, and we in this case was Secretary Baker, Dennis Ross, and myself, and others, that the one thing we had to do was refuse all of his offers of coffee or tea, because if we took the coffee or tea, we would need the bathroom break first, and that would be seen as a tremendous sign of weakness and a loss of face. So yes, uh, sometimes these things matter. So all these techniques, whether it's the sun in your eyes or starvation or (laughs) bladder pressure, they're all designed to induce crankiness so that you get so cranky, you just want the negotiation to end. And because of this other aspect we talked about a couple episodes ago, agreement bias, that once people are at a negotiating table, they want to achieve an agreement. They want to seal a deal. Crankiness just encourages people to sign any deal. Right. If you ever bought real estate, you know you can be there at the closing and it just goes on for hours around the conference table. And by the end, they can put any document in front of you and you're going to sign it. You just want it done with. You just want that house. So we don't actually encourage you to use these physical tactics, but we want you to be aware when someone's using them on you. An even more powerful tactic is time pressure, putting a ticking clock on your opponent so they're forced to make a decision before that time runs out. Time pressure can be a really potent weapon, but you have to be careful how you use it. And Richard Haas had some thoughts on this. Deadlines were a very controversial feature of negotiations. By definition, deadlines create pressure. That can sometimes force people to come to compromise, to make accommodations. You see it all the time in labor negotiations. You actually hear stories about people, quote unquote, stopping the clock. You have before people go out on strike, uh, so you literally pull the plug on the clock. But negotiations against the deadline can, can focus the mind. Otherwise, sometimes people won't feel pressure. And in the absence of pressure, uh, things will just go on, particularly if one of the other parties believes that time is on their side and that the other side won't be able to endure as well as they can or that additional factors which will come into play, which will, which will work to their advantage rather than the others. In the mock negotiations we had at our Columbia Business School class, the professor would always put a clock on our negotiations. Sometimes it would be as little as three minutes, sometimes 15 minutes. Sometimes we would have three hours to have a mock negotiation. And yet it always seemed like until the last three minutes, no deal was happening. People were always holding out for a better deal. Right. Everything always happens in that flurry of activity right at the end. Now, you can use time pressure to your advantage if the situation is right. One way to do it is to just say at the beginning, you don't have much time to negotiate. So let's say Jill and I have just finished recording this podcast and we head down to the West 4th Street subway platform. We're waiting for our separate trains. And I say, 
Jill, you know, I have these Amy sure. Mann concert tickets for tonight that actually I can't use. Oh, dude, I'm old. I love adult contemporary music. I would love to take those Amy Mann tickets off your hands. Oh, well, that's great. But here's the thing. Uh, you know, I'd like to help you out. You're a friend, but I'm selling them for double the face price. I just want to let you know that. Are you going to take them? Oh, God, I really should talk to my husband about that first. Ugh. Oh, but you know what? Here comes my train, Jill. You got to make a decision uh, right now or I'm going to sell them to somebody uh, else. What do you say? Oh, OK, I'll take it. Awesome. I didn't negotiate as well as I could have because I succumbed to the time pressure. But sometimes time pressure can backfire. Richard Haas found out firsthand. Sure, I remember once in, in Northern Ireland, I was working closely with Tony Blair, at that time the Prime Minister uh, of Britain, and Bertie Ahern, the Taoiseach, or the Prime Minister of Ireland. And we set in advance the date for a big conference and where we were going to bring together all the parties of Northern Ireland. And we were hoping that by setting the date, we could put pressure on everyone, to put it bluntly, to jam them a little bit to make the compromises that we knew would be necessary for a comprehensive deal, and it didn't work. We couldn't get the parties to move fast enough, and what happened was, it's an interesting lesson, in order to make the compromises we wanted at the table, they had to in turn bring along their own internal politics, and they simply needed more time. We tried to, in a sense, move things a little bit faster than the domestic politics of one of the parties would allow us. It's an interesting idea. What matters sometimes is not simply jamming people to get an agreement, but you want an agreement that lasts. You want an agreement that endures, that thrives, that lives. And that means, in some cases, getting sides not to sign an agreement under duress. What matters in a negotiation is not simply the agreement at the table. But after the table, the various parties have to return to their bases, whether your base is a business, a law firm, the living room, or in this case, a country. So it's important that people be able to present the outcome as the best available or good enough, depending upon the circumstances. And that's why you have to sometimes be careful about jamming people too much, because then things won't stick. So you can do things like say at the outset that you're only willing to negotiate for half an hour, and then if you don't come to a deal, you're going to be on your way. Or you can make an exploding offer. Say, uh, you can take this deal, but it's only good for the next 10 minutes, and then I'm going to take it off the table. And you can use these physical tactics. But the thing with all of these is that you don't want to get too bogged down in them. Even master negotiators like Richard Haas say these things can sometimes get in the way. It was at the Madrid Peace Conference. We were worried that the entire conference was going to blow up. This was October 1991, right after the Iraq War. It was the first time Israelis and Arabs ever met face-to-face -to, -face to negotiate. President Bush the father, Secretary Baker was there. And we were very worried that things were going to go off the rails because there was raw emotion in the room. And Prime Minister Shamir was there from Israel and, and, and so forth. And we were trying to keep everybody on the clock because we were worried if speeches went over, they would get out of hand. So we had one member of our side literally with a, a stopwatch. And one of the speeches, I think it was the Syrian, was going on way too long. And I remember Baker turned around because he said, this has to be going on too long, and to turn to the guy who was keeping the clock, and the guy had fallen asleep. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a bad omen. And uh, needless to say, a Middle East peace has not broken out. It's just, it's funny, but it's also, um, it's just a reminder that these things, you know, negotiations are done by people with all the foibles and all the personalities and, and politics. So there's little that's inevitable. That's it for episode four. In episode five, we'll talk about dealing with the jerk factor and how to negotiate with an ethical conscience. You can send us feedback and questions at our email address 
podcasts, that's with an S, at Slate.com. You'll find this and every past episode of the Negotiation Academy at Slate.com slash negotiation. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Our producer is Mark Phillips. And I'm Jill Barche. And I'm Seth Stevenson. Happy haggling. We'll talk to you next episode. Wow.